the best way I can possibly do what I was setting out to do, which was to make every member of the audience feel like they were sitting next to me, watching it happen 10 feet away, was live singing. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Stephen Chbosky's new musical drama, Dear Evan Hansen. An adaptation of the award-winning Broadway musical, the film presents the story of a high school senior with social anxiety disorder who embarks on a journey of self-discovery and acceptance after the suicide of a fellow classmate. In addition to Dear Evan Hansen, Mr. Chbosky's other directorial credits include the feature films Wonder, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and The Four Corners of Nowhere. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Shabosky spoke with fellow director Peter Hedges about filming Dear Evan Hansen. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Wow. I, I know you started to shoot this about a year ago at this time, right? I yeah, feel like it was almost, right late yes, it was, it was the, I think the third week of September, I think it was 21st. So this, you, you managed to make this movie in COVID, which is <laughs> astonishing. Yeah it, it, yeah, it was entirely, you know, it was funny because we, we were going in the June of 2020. So we had locations picked, we had, you know, in crew, there's certain things. And then March 20, you know, uh, changed it for all of our lives. And so the movie, it didn't fall apart. It was definitely put on, on like it was, it hibernated. And then, and then we got back up and running. Um, but, you know, it was like with all new crew, we just kind of had to start from scratch. Other than having Ben Platt and Caitlin Deaver, everything else was, was from scratch, you know? Wow. Well, I have a ton of questions. But can we do a, a kind of a, a, a bio of you from the early days? When, when did you know you wanted to direct film? Well, I, I probably from the time I was about 12, because what I wanted to be was a novelist. And so I, I, I went to my dad. I remember I, I grew up in Pittsburgh. And uh, dad was a steel town boy. Like, you know, he, he got out on scholarship. So I said to him, dad, I want to be a writer. That's what I said, writer. I meant novelist, but I said writer. He said, well, great writers are great readers. And he said that. And then he kind of like went to the other room to like smoke a Marlboro Red and watch the Penguins. <laughs> and I didn't take it as advice to get me to read more. I took it as a rule. You know, like you look up to your dad and you go, oh, gosh, that's the rule. Oh, God. Because I wasn't a great reader. I was a little dyslexic and I was really slow. So I said, well... I don't really read books. I guess I read movies. I guess I, I get, I'll, write, I'll write movies. So it was actually like a weird, that's what got me started on, on films because I, I found watching them infinitely easier than reading a book. And so, wow. but then that started it. And then, then I really dedicated myself and I went to film school and, and everything else. So yeah, from, from there, from the time I was about 12. And when did you start writing prose? I know this is a DGA but this is a writer director and I'm a writer. So I have to ask that. Sorry. Um, senior year of college. I kind of, I had this one idea um, that uh, eventually kind of morphed and became the perks of being a wallflower, but uh, the book. Um, and I started writing that when I was 26. So I thought of it in college. And then when I was 26, I, I, I um, that was it. Okay. And you'd made your first feature at 24, 24. Yeah. There's a movie called the four corners of nowhere. We went to Sundance Um you know, I was such a kid and, you know, look, we all know the fairy tale uh, stories from Sundance and then there are the other stories. And I was one of the other stories. And even though it was great to go, it was quite a, quite a, um, you know, in hindsight now I'm 51 now in hindsight, I go, wow, that was really, what a, what a lovely accomplishment to be in competition at that age was lovely. I right. turned 25 at the festival, but you know, 
we didn't really get distribution. We lost our shirts. I, I lost my parents like over a hundred thousand dollars and like all these things. And, and, and I just felt like, ah, you know, I guess I just don't, I guess I'm not a director. I'll just focus on the writing, you know, cause I, I took, I took that as a very deep failure, that movie, because I lost so many people. I loved so much money and yeah, so that, that's what happened. Wow. 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 So then Perks, the novel came out in the 1990, 1999. Yeah. So I wrote, I wrote my novel Perks. It, it came out in 99. Was that in response to the movie? Kind kind of like, well, I'm going to write a novel. They, if I write a novel, in a way, in a way it okay. was more of a response to a terrible breakup from a girl named Jane. Uh, <laughs> amazing. How but, much uh, great artists yeah, created it's out of true, It's really breakups. true. Yeah. Um, but in a way I have to say though, it's like, I remember my son here was 1995. It's the very first year of Fox searchlight. And I was told by many, many people that basically Fox searchlight came to that Sundance to pick one young filmmaker and champion their movie. And I was told by many people that, that my movie came in second to Eddie Burns as the Brothers McMullen. So kind of he had the film career in the 90s and the early right. 2000s. And I remember looking at his, yeah. him and Kevin Smith and some of those other guys. And I, I just, I, oh my God, I envied them so much because I was like, I want to be doing that. But I, I couldn't get anything off the ground because nothing happened with my movie. So I turned to novels um, and then later television is kind of like, well, this isn't going to happen for me. So I guess I'll, I'll do it this way because I wanted to put right. things out into the world. So the film... Perks happened. Isn't that great? Perks shorthand. Uh, but you shot that maybe 12 years later. From yeah. You, well, I, I published it in 99 and then I was on set filming it in uh, 2011, 11, 11. 11. Okay. And it came out in 12. Yeah. That was like a, one of those things where I remember. So I, I, I finally found myself in television where I heard that writer is King and it's, it wasn't for my, in my case, it wasn't really true. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I barely squeaked out, you know, Jester. It, it really was. I was like, oh. And so I just found myself, I was like, I was 37, 38 and nothing. And it was funny because nothing had been fulfilling. It's just like I, what I needed to do was like finish something like all the way through. Right. And so I just, I took myself off the grid and I just wrote the perk screenplay until I thought it was really good. And And then I, and I built the family. Like I got the producers that I wanted. And then I got, you know, the Charlie and the Sam and I just started building the family. And that ended up, that be, kind of became my, the way I did stuff. And it really helped a lot. Um, wow. And so when I went into making the person wallflower, I had this, you know, we all have moments with ourselves in our career. I said, look, I may hate this. I may hate directing, but I have to do this story. And I'd run out of track. It was kind of like, it was like, kind of like a artistically speaking, kind of a do or die moment for me. Wow. And I ended up loving it. And I was like, oh, this is, this is great. So, you know, when I did Four Corners of Nowhere, I, I got, I got in the can for like $52,000. I, I didn't know the difference between scrounging for everything and, oh, Andrew Dunn's your DP. And, oh, look at these amazing, like, it was just a different world. Sure. And I, and I loved it. I was like, oh, with these tools at your disposal, I, I see what you can do now. And then that led to wonder and then wonder in many ways led to this. Right. So this, the reason for this was to try to understand, because I think it's always interesting how anybody gets in the chair, right? Yes. That's, and, and your story is quite unique, and you wrote yourself into the chair, really. Yes. And you wrote it, and you got into the chair on, on something. I loved how you said, I may not, I may not like doing this, but I have, I have to tell this story. This is a story 100%. that's in my bone. So, so let's jump to the, this one. I'd love to talk about all your movies. Um, all your work. Uh, 
I, I found this, um, the, the performances here are, are, I think, are staggering um, okay. uh, to, a, to, a, to a person. Um, every, everyone is exquisite. And I want to talk about how in COVID you did that. Also, how are you getting such, uh, I mean, almost every musical I see, I, okay, this would lead to a question too. You, you adapted Rent, for instance, mm-hmm. and, and uh, for the screen and, and Beauty and the Beast. So yeah, you've had yeah. two experiences scripting musicals. Yes. And w- what did those experiences teach you in terms of how you wanted to do this film? Well, it's taught me, you know, sometimes it, you look at, cause, so Rent was interesting because Rent, I had two directors. The first person I wrote for was Spike Lee, and this was in the summer of 2001. That version didn't happen. Um, they couldn't make certain things work. There's certain casting things that they couldn't quite agree on, so it went away. And four years later, or three, three, three and a half years later, Chris Columbus picked it up. Both Spike Lee and Chris Columbus, they're both writers as well. They were both very good to me. You know, Chris really took over the writing. I didn't really do much of that. Although he, he was like, come to set, come and look at it. I want your notes on the, on the cut. I want your notes on my, my draft of your script, you know, that kind of thing. So it was very open that way. And that was really helpful. Um, and I learned a lot just, just working for Spike, um, just writing for him. He was a big hero of mine. I do the right things. One of my favorite movies. And so that was really exciting. What I learned is kind of what I learned on my TV show, Jericho, a couple of years later, which was, you know, I think I had in my head from when I was 24 that there was a right way to direct, right? Right. I didn't know at the time, what I, I don't even know why I felt this way, but that, that, no, there's not really a right way. There are many approaches and seeing, just going, wow, the Spike Lee version of Rent would have been much different than, than the Chris Columbus version. And then you start to like think about what would that, ver- and then what would my version be? And you just think about all these things you know, all these decisions and not knowing at the time. So I guess what I learned was it was really the, the decision-making process, the idea, because thinking about, and I love what Chris Columbus did. So like, and I, he's a, he's been lovely to me. So I have nothing but good things to say. Um, but I think anybody would know that the Spike Lee rent would have been completely different than the Chris, like, like night and day in terms of like New York and how it would feel. So that got me thinking about tone. And that got me thinking about, I, I guess, kind of like authorship in a way. Look at it almost the way I look at novels that, that like but rather than words or, or certain ways of doing chapters, it's shot selection, it's casting. So, yeah, it was just like, I don't know, it's like mentorship, I guess. Okay. There's nothing technical. It's not like it's not like I, I looked at it like, uh, you know, oh, I want to do storyboards because Spike did that or, or, you know, this person, you know, it wasn't like that. But my experience and I have no experience doing what you've done and you've done it so exquisitely. But what I understand is normally what happens in a musical is you pre-record all the songs because you don't want the actors to have to sing them take take after take. Everything felt real here. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, well, live singing was kind of like my number one thing. Where I where I thought, you know, my other two studio features with Perks and with Wonder, they were book adaptations and books. You know, you know, you write novels and and, and lovely ones at that is. It's, it's a different thing that you're trying to capture. There is a, you know, it's like you have, you have the, the, the reader has your book and there's a detail about it. And so what you're trying to mimic to the best of your ability is what's going on right here, right? Theater is completely different. Theater, what you're trying to mimic is what a thousand seat theater feels like, but now it's just a dining room. And to me, the cornerstone of that decision was, well, if I have this magical performer in Ben Platt and I have all these other actors, well, what is, what the best way I can possibly 
do what I was setting out to do, which was to make every member of the audience feel like they were sitting next to me, watching it happen 10 feet away, was live singing. You know, there, there, of course, there are some exceptions when the guys are dancing because, like, they're so winded they couldn't do it. Or when, um, you know, when Evan's walking through the hallways and there's, like, a million people. Sure. Like, although some of that actually is still live. We're able to – whenever we could do it, we did it. That was the rule. But I just thought that that, that gave us the best opportunity tonally to make people feel like they were there. And that's what I wanted it to feel like. So how, how do you shoot that in such a way? I mean, I know, I mean, you've got Julianne Moore, Amy Adams, Caitlin Deaver. I mean, these are actors who probably need a take or two. I mean, they're that good. Everybody's so good. And, and, and Ben, who you never got to see. No, I never saw him do it on Broadway. No, I got to see him three times. Oh, wow. Did anyone here get to see Dear Evan Hansen with Ben live? That's exactly, yeah. yeah. I, I, I wish. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for, for capturing him here because uh, it's one of those performances in, in if you see live, you, you, you talk about the way I remember when I saw John Malkovich act when I was young doing True West or sure. the way people talk. Forgive me if this feels over rod or hyperbolic, but it's not for me like seeing Marlon Brando do Stanley. I mean, this role just feels like yeah, it's one of those. I, I own this yeah. role in a way. Um, so, okay. So you're, it's COVID you're shooting in COVID. How, how did that shape and inform and alter um, and maybe Im- improve the experience? Or, well, or what it, did it, it kind of did all of the above. It, it, it improved the film in a way because I, I look, I, I had my own adolescence to draw from, but you know, I'm a fairly social person. That's why I like to direct and not write novels all the time. I love people. I love to be around them. And it was really strange to go down to Atlanta and just be alone for months. You could not go home. Your family could not visit you because of the protocol. At one point, it's like the saddest, literally the saddest day of my life was I actually figured out a way to get my family to visit me, but I didn't understand some of the intricacies of the protocol. They're in the air on the plane and I get the phone call from, from Universal saying, listen, if you see your family, you can't come to set, you know, and they were there. And when they landed, and so I had to put them in the Four Seasons, the, the Four Seasons Hotel, which is close, and I couldn't see them. It, was, it just destroyed me. And two days later, I'm directing Julianne Moore, her first day of shooting, which was like her first couple of scenes there. And it, it like, it just zapped me. So moments like that, you know, inform, but informed all of us because... If you were out of town, like, you know, the local crew, they could, they could go home for all of us. It's just, you couldn't even go out. You couldn't go out to dinner because there was, you couldn't risk it. You couldn't risk the production. And so it just led to, it was like, basically it was like Chinese dumplings and like CNN. And then you wake up and you do it again. Like, you know, but, but it led to this beautiful thing though. When the mask did come off for the cast, everyone was so hungry for connection. It was like, you, you, yeah, it was, it was, and you feel it. You, you could feel, feel it, it. Yeah. because that was the only human contact anyone had. So here's this horrible gray cloud, but this amazing emotional silver lining. It also, it, it forced me as a director to be very resourceful in terms of, it was me and Brandon Trost, my DP, right. on my porch in Atlanta. And basically in order like to do the performances, because we couldn't have a ton of rehearsal, you know, and, and even when we did, it was like when I re- rehearsed uh, Ben and Caitlin, it was visors and masks. You couldn't take them off. So it's like, I'm guessing what I think they're going to look like. So, you know, we all know, you know, how much the eyes can do when you cover things or, or how you're approaching it. I had to kind of guess a lot of the time. 
And so what I ended up doing was I kind of started started to think about every character as if how I would play them. I'm not an actor at all. Right. But but just so I would I just it was like this empathy overdrive. And I also had a lot of extra time at night. So I would, yes, I, I would sit there and I would like go, you know, I go like this, please Biden win. And then I, I would come back and then I would, I would be like, OK, what's Zoe thinking about now? And I would do it over and over and over again, um, almost like a Meisner thing. And then Brandon. So I'd be on the porch and then Brandon, he ended up becoming a lot of the camera stuff. And I would just play all the parts or I'd block it because, you know, base camp again, protocols. Base camp is like a, oh, on the other side of the moon. So you're like, well, okay. Uh, I think that, like for example, the the baseball scene where, where Larry and, and Evan are talking right. about the baseball glove is like, I didn't have them. I couldn't rehearse them. And we were running out of time at this location. And so I was like, okay. And then I just blocked it in my head. I was like, and on FaceTime, like, let it go, all right, hey, Danny, how does this feel? I think you start here, you do the glove here, you sit down, you turn, he's here, the light will be back there. And it's like, is that okay? And it's like, yeah, yeah, I, I think that makes sense. So you're not, you're not in the room with them. Well, sometimes you're in the room with sometimes. them. For sure, for sure. But again, because, because, and it's, it's different now, obviously with vaccines, I think because we were the first, yeah, I think were. we were the first movie that started in COVID. I think, I think there was a lot of TV and things that had already begun, but I think we were, we were the first from scratch movie. Oh, it was a big deal. During when you it. guys started to film. Yeah. So, so yeah. it, so it was a lot of trial and error. And, and I remember sometime on weekends being on the phone with some of my colleagues that they were about to start. And I'd say, listen, you make damn sure that when your transpo guys make sure that the, the plastic is full yep. and make sure that the, the little um, uh, AC thing isn't on the, you know, recycled air and stuff like that. We lost actors. I can't tell you uh, we lost Amy Adams for two weeks for a false positive at the end of the shoot. When we went, finally went to the high school we lost most of the high school kids for the last week and a half. So like moments like, you know, like when, uh, during you will be found where he finished his singing on the, on the stage. And then you cut to all those kids, like looking at their phones and like looking like this, I had to do it that way. There was going to be a whole other moment of them, uh, like having moments in, in the auditorium, but I lost them all. So, so I thought about the footage I had and said, okay, I got to shoot a lot of inserts and they can have their personal moment with, uh, Wow. With, with Evan, but on their devices. And it ended up being better than I think what I originally planned. So a lot of it was for the better. But yeah, it was on your toes all the time because also you would go to set and you would never know right. who was going to be there. You know, and that was a lot, especially the last three weeks. I can't tell, like, it's actually really lovely to talk to fellow directors because we're the only ones that really understand. This is, when you this show is up, unbelievable. You show up at set and you go, so who, who do I got? You know what I mean? And then, and then, okay. And also because we had to finish by Thanksgiving, there was budget stuff, there was schedule stuff, but really it's like, we knew if we do not finish before Thanksgiving, everyone's going to go and see their families. It doesn't matter what they pledge. Over. Yeah. You can't, you know, yeah. and then it's going to be so dangerous after Thanksgiving. We all know the spike that happened during right. the holidays. So we felt that pressure in every day. And so because of a couple false positive, we lost days shooting early Luckily, we didn't shoot down for a long time, but but like we're constantly juggling. We for the last month and a half, we did six day weeks. Oh. You know what I mean? It, it was it was like wow. It was it was a lot. You know, it was it really makes me. Uh, it, I, I have a enormous uh, respect for television directing. Uh, that like I never had. You know, I always thought it's like amazing. How do you do it so fast? That blows my mind. But the pressure and the constant pivoting was was remarkable on this one.
Wow. So there are, tell us about the new songs in this. Can you point them out for people who might not know the music? Yeah, yeah. The two, the two yeah. new songs. One was called "The Anonymous Ones," and right. it starts when Alana is on the on the swing set. Yeah. Um, and that replaced a song on Broadway that was called "Disappear," and I'll explain the context of "Disappear" for those who don't know the show. And then a little closer, the song Connor at the end when yes. you reveal it's him, and that's the song that he wrote. Um, so it, this was like one of those a couple birds with one stone or win-win. Like we were, we were talking, I was talking to the authors about it. And, you know, cause this is the first movie I ever directed that I didn't write. So, sure, you know, that's different. It, was, it was, it was more like working with the with the, the authors and, and trying to find different solutions. But so there's this one convention on stage, which works brilliantly and you've seen it. It works great where Evan is like, it's like the two of us, like, like I'm Evan and you're Connor, but really you're not Connor. What you are is uh is Evan's alter ego. It's like, you know, he's talking to himself sure. and it's even revealed at the end, like here you are talking to yourself, which is really cool. And it works in the abstraction of the, of the stage and, and the screens and Michael Greif's amazing direction. I'm a huge Michael Greif fan. I think, I think that show is amazing. So we knew that in a real bedroom, it would look, it would, it would feel like a ghost thing. There's something about the, the literal translation, you know, the, the translation, it didn't quite work. So what we did was, we said, okay, that has to go. So what, what happens now? There's a domino effect where there's a song disappear that they sing. So we have to have something akin to dis disappears when basically Evan is singing with himself, convincing himself, you know, people deserve, nobody deserves to be forgotten. We got to keep going on this Connor project idea to keep this kid's memory alive. That's what it was. And so we knew that we couldn't have that song. So we needed to find something to, to, you know, um, uh, take its place. And also, because we had Amanda Stenberg, um, who's a wonderful actor. Yes, she is. Yeah, we, we wanted to, we just wanted to make more of Alana. And we wanted to make more of like Alana driving a lot of this thing. Because yep. I also knew once you put the, the family's close, uh, grief in close-up, you know, Cynthia and, and Larry on stage, it's beautiful characters, but they're like over here. Their grief isn't in your face. Their grief is like on the other side of the room. It's a different thing. We all know that. It's like to see... Larry break down in that moment during you will be found. Right. You know, in close up, you know, I saw the show several times. It took me three times to go, Oh wow. Larry's breaking down. Oh, that's beautiful. I was looking over here toward Evan. So if you're not looking the right way, you don't see it. So I knew that once you got in close up, it would change things emotionally. So kind of Lana had to start to drive some of this stuff or else he's an opportunist as it is. We're skirting how, you know, is this kid a sociopathic? Like, what is he really doing? And I felt like with the family's grief being in close and we all, we all, it was a team effort. We are like, okay, we have to work a lot harder to understand and empathize with Evan and why he's doing right. this. Yes. Oh, and the other song, a little closer. Once you took away Connor as the alter ego, there was too little Connor. We needed more Connor. So we were like, well, what if we, we solve another problem, which is, you know, Evan should go to try to find out something about this kid. Like right. he, he, you know, that's respectful. I'm big on respect. That's a big, that's a big cornerstone for how I approach movies and that would be the respectful thing to do. And so then that led to the song and, and, uh, and he finishes time. singing Connor's song. hundred percent. Yes. And that, that was a, that was a really cool moment. That was actually Mark Platt, the producer. We, we had a reading right before we started, um, shooting and, um, and so Colton Ryan, who plays Connor, he sings the song. It's lovely. And, and I was going to do this thing where, uh, where during the reading, I was going to ask him not to sing it. 
because I wanted the first time that 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 uh, Danny, Amy, and Caitlin heard the song to be on camera. That's what I was hoping for. Wow! But it just felt like I was like, no, do it now because I I I don't, I don't need that trickery. Let's just do it. He sings it, and then Mark Platt says, "I think that's the final moment." It's that. It's not for forever, which is is on stage. However, which was really fun, and we mixed the film. It's so crazy, like at Fifty Fifth Street and like between Ninth and Tenth at Warner Sound, and. At the very last, second to last day, um, Justin Paul, you know, um, who, who does, like, they, they do everything together, Justin and Benj, but, like, Justin's a little bit more music and Benj's a little bit more lyrics. And he was like, what if we did a little bit of acapella? So we did the acapella thing um, when he's singing. And then I said, well, listen, if you're going to do it, go all the way. Just take it all out. And so it's, like, on the, it's so exciting, isn't it, as a director, like, almost like on the second to last day to, to finally realize sure. that the music itself was the noise in his head. And that, 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 that thing, that pulse, that din, 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 for waving is now gone. And there's calm as represented by the music. It was, it was moments like that. It's like, you can't, it, that, that was the fun of making this one. Wow. I love that. I loved, I loved um, going into the room and seeing the, the holes on the wall, but also yeah. you see the unknowability of people, how we don't, we don't know people and that, and that there was a redemptive part of, uh, Evan, you know, seeking out, trying to understand this kid that he didn't know and then mm-hmm. gifting them that video. Yes. It's really, um, and, and, and satisfying in an right. anonymous uh, envelope too. He didn't even put his name on it. Like, I don't know if you caught it, but like that was big, that was big on, on Steven Levinson, our screenwriter. He said like, it has to be an anonymous, uh, you know, also in taking with the anonymous ones, you know, aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, and the, the other big difference was he doesn't confess on Broadway. And that was like when I started working with the guys, I said, you know, my only criticism of the show, which I do love very much, and is I think he has to come clean to the community. And it makes sense why they didn't do it on stage because there is no community. The community is the eight actors, you know. and Right. And so there is no other school or any other environment where he has to pay the piper. So it makes sense. That you don't really need it on stage. But I said, I, I really love that because I would love for him to confess because I felt like it's, it's wonderful that Connor's family doesn't, doesn't expose him. It's very classy of them. And I, and I think that's wonderful, but I kept thinking like, is he at his 10th or 20th? I just had my 30th high school reunion when I was coming on board oh, of this thing. Yeah. And I was thinking, I remember 30. Yeah. He's yeah. like, is he, is, is he 30 40. years late? <laughs> like, is he saying, you know, at your 10th high school reunion? Oh, you know, Connor and me, you know, oh yeah. I like, I was like, he can't keep lying. So if the, if the, the theme of the show is, you know, no hiding, no lying, just be yourself. And that's enough. Then he has to be free of the lying and the hiding, which means he has to come clean to the community or else there is no, there is no ultimate arc. Like I felt very strongly about it. So, and, and the guys were, they were all on board. That was really great. And, and I thought they executed it really well. How many days did you shoot? Um, and how many would you have shot if it weren't COVID? Yeah. I mean, well, we, we, we were held to, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is Atlanta or what. We were held to 10 hour days and every now and then we went over like 10 hours straight. Like that's, that's what oh, we French, worked out French, with the French, day, French day hours. Kind of, but it. no, it was more like 12, but we bought out the meal. I, I forget how, how right. it worked um, exactly. But, it was 10 hours. So we did 49 days. We were supposed to do 43, but once we, we had to switch to 10 hour days, they gave us extra to make up for. And also because, you know, the anonymous ones had not been written yet. So 
that was written maybe two thirds into shooting. So, so I was like, I knew there was going to be something. I just didn't know what it was. And the reason why we, we, um, doubled up the first day of school was that was my idea just simply to be efficient. I was like, I don't have time to stage an entire other world. So let's just lean into her point of view of the thing that we know. Right. Something I didn't wonder a little bit. Um, and, and I thought it worked pretty well. Okay. Um, this is going to be my last question and it's a bit selfish and I'm going to give it a small explanation for it. Stephen and I were both deeply impacted by a really great man by the name of Stuart Stern. Um, Stuart Stern gave us Rebel Without a Cause. He wrote Rebel Without a Cause. He wrote Sybil. He was a great, great man, a great teacher, a great writer. And I would just love to, um, I, I knew him very well, and he inspired me and changed me. But I suspect you started knowing him when you were 19. And I just would love to hear you speak about what you learned from Stuart. From Stuart? I think you've made, you, you make films about people who teach us. Mm-hmm. All of your films, all of your films, your, your big human soul and the, 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 the stories you ache to tell are all about people who come and show us a, a new way, a, a different way, a, a new way to move. And I just would selfishly, this is for me, but you're, I wish you'd known this man. He was a great man. If, what sure. did you learn well, from, from it's Stuart? Hard, it's hard to put into context, Stuart. Like we all have, you know, it's almost like the movie Dead Poets Society. When you look at Rob Williams and you think, can a teacher ever be that great? Well, Stuart was. And I knew, I, I never had him as a, teach, a, a teacher, but from the time I was, so I met him when I was 17. And it was a Q&A like this at USC Film School. And I was just visiting that day. And because of that Q&A or that little seminar that he did, um, I chose to go to that school. And, um, you know, and I, so what happened was, what, God, I, I don't even know how to, how to sum this up. Basically, he was here. I will tell Stuart Stern's story that I think will tell everything about him. So at the time, he was 81, I believe. And Stuart had... Um, he had a real Peter Pan thing. Like he, his, uh, his, I think godmother was Mary Pickford who was going to play Peter Pan in a silent film. Adolf Zucker was, uh, or cute. Wait, um, who was the great, I'm, I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm blanking. He was uh, also the only person from Hollywood to go to James Dean's funeral. No. Oh. And he stayed in James Dean's bedroom. Yeah. There, you, there go. you go. Okay. So, so Stuart loved Peter Pan, loved it and loved the story and had every, you name it. And a local production in Seattle where he lived was coming into town and they said, they were turned on to Stuart and like, and they they looked at all of his stuff and they said, oh my God, Mr. Stern, we'd love to use this for the program, but we're like a little theater. Like we don't have any really like, well, how can you, what do you, what do you want? And he said, I want 10 minutes of airtime. He wanted to fly on the cable. He was 81 and he ended up getting a half an hour. And he said that that <laughs> that was like the greatest experience. And at eighty-one, listen, I have I've, I have eighty-one-year-olds in my life who basically it's like if the cable that we're talking about is Fox News, they're right in. You know what I'm saying? Like that that that's what they're they're into. But like this guy, he wanted to fly, and everything. The greatest gift he ever gave me for my wedding was a page out of the the, the handwritten page of the Rebel screenplay, um, which was remarkable. Um, and it's actually really sad. Like, you know, the, the storm I'm sure impacts a lot of people here. It sure got me. I just moved from California. 
I had four storage units like of everything. And I have a Stuart Stern box that got destroyed. Luckily, thank God, that page of Rebel, like, and, and, a, and a letter that he wrote to me uh, survived. But uh, yeah, Stuart was, Stuart was the only person that I thanked in both the novel and the film, The Perks Me Wallflower. Until he passed away, he was, he, he was always the first to read every screenplay that I wrote. Um, you know, he read the, the 213-page uh, Monster in a Box version of Perks. And he would always say things. I don't know if he did this to you, but, like, he would always say things. He'd say, he'd say one sentence, and you just, it would just cut you to ribbons, but in a nice way. Where he would, like, read a script and go, you know, I don't think you know your characters yet. You know? Or he read the Perks adaptation, the first draft, and you go, I don't remember them being this silly, you know? And it sounds mean that I say it like that. It wasn't. And then you look at it, and you're like, ah, he's right. God, they are silly. And then you go back, and then it becomes what it needs to become, you know? And when he, I was finishing the Beauty and the Beast screenplay when he passed away, and I remember going up, and, and Stewart's passing changed a lot of how I felt about, you know, look, we all direct our movies and we're, or, or our episodes or whatever it is we're doing. And as we know, when we're, we're there, it's like, it feels like the entire world. Right. And Stuart taught me something in his passing as he did in his life, where it's like, I asked my, I looked around, you know, cause I was there for six days when he was passing away and I saw who showed up and who didn't, you know, this was, I mean, my God, Paul Newman was his best friend. Brando came to his wedding. Like he, he was, he was, you know, from a screenwriting standpoint, Hollywood royalty. And he knew everybody and everybody knew him. And I noticed who came and who didn't, um, but also who'd already passed. And, and I, so my rule was like, will this person be on my, be at my deathbed? Like when I'm, when I am the, you know, the man in, in, in the bed, will they be there? If the answer is yes. Then, you know, hugs, hugs, hugs. If the answer is no, not to be disrespectful or mean, but I just, I try to remember that, that there is life and then there is work. And he ultimately taught me that, you know, wow. through his life and then ultimately through his passing. Wow. Thank you for that, for indulging sure. that question and gifting us those stories. And thank you for your beautiful work in this beautiful film. Thank you. Everybody, give it up. Thank you Steven. very much. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.